Good evening, everyone, and welcome back once again to our Wednesday night live Bible study. And welcome, Newark family. It's good to see you all. For those of you who perchance may not know me, my name is Desi Lugo, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at this church. And tonight is the first time that I have had a chance to broadcast since the new year started. And so welcome to 2021. On behalf of the Lugo family, we welcome all of you back. We're so glad to be back with all of you tonight, and it's my pleasure to get to continue in the series that started last evening, and if you were not able to tune in, I'd encourage you to go back and look at that. Last night, our executive assistant, Joyce Allen, kicked off this theme for the week, and it's this idea that Jesus loves you, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And I love that concept in the Bible. And so tonight, I'm going to continue along and try to develop a little more of some of the thoughts that Sister Joyce shared with us. But before we do, I also want to make one other little plug. For those of you who are a regular member of our church, you have been with us now since COVID-19 started, and we've had to drastically change the way that we are communicating, the way that we are fellowshipping. And yes, this is a temporary situation, but this temporary situation has been going on since March of 2020. And I want to commend all of you for your faithfulness. For those of you who are online guests, or perhaps you're a digital viewer and you've joined us somewhere along the way and you've been faithful with us ever since, thank you for joining us as well. As this new year was starting and I was spending some time in prayer and contemplating in my own walk with God, I was reminded and talking again with some family members, if there are two things I could encourage you to do right now, and this, this would go for everyone, and I'm not going to say anything new. For all of you who are members of our church, you've heard us say this many times before, but I just want to reiterate it again here. During this time especially, it has been a great reminder to all of us to me included, that you have got to dig your own well. As a disciple of Christ, if you want to live a life that is truly pleasing to him, if you want to live a life of victory, if you want to grow and have strength during this time, which I absolutely believe you can, you must hear me, congregation. You must dig your own wells. And this is a difficult time for all of us. And it's an awkward time and it's unusual and it's something that we are not used to. And we've had to drastically change the way that we approach a lot of things. But the church is not being stopped. And God's message is not being thwarted. And God's kingdom still has a plan. And his kingdom still continues to advance. And as we work our way through this unusual time, we have great opportunities to continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. In fact, in many ways, I work from home. This has been an opportunity in a new way to even dig in more. Things have slowed down for our family. For many of you, I would imagine they've slowed down or at least the pace has changed and it's a little bit different than it was before COVID. And I would encourage all of you every day to spend time digging your own well. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, when I say digging your own well, what I mean is spend time, regular, consistent time, reading the scriptures, talking with God, in other words, spending time in prayer and drawing close to him. We want you to join our broadcast. We want you to participate in our online Bible studies like tonight. We want you to participate in our small groups and submit prayer requests and baptism requests. If you need to be baptized, we can help you with that. But along the way, 
it can't just be about your interaction with all of us. You've also got to spend time on your own, digging your own well. That's the first thing I'd tell anyone, a reminder to myself included. And the second thing I would say that goes along with that, that as you dig your own well, one of the primary ways you do this is through the study of scripture. And we do this through a slow read. You've heard me many times, if you listen regularly, talk about doing a slow read. Spend time in the scriptures and read at a pace that makes sense to you. Read at a pace that allows you time to do reflection, that allows you time to pray over the scriptures you're reading, and allows time for God to speak back to you and to open the eyes of your understanding. Pray for wisdom as you read the scriptures. And as you do a slow read, pay attention carefully to the context and the surrounding verses of the passage you're reading. And I'm, I'm not going to walk through all of that. Again, you can jump on our website at newarkupc.info, click on our media page, and you can go back to some of our previous series, and you'll see one that we did on understanding your Bible. And we at length talk about that. And there are many Bible resources that are free online available to any of you who want to spend more time studying who want to spend more time digging your own well and doing a nice slow read. And so as we start 2021, you may have thought of some resolutions or what you want to do this year, perhaps things that you want to be different. Make this a part of your plan for 2021, that you will dig your own well, that you will spend time doing a slow read of scripture. And I guarantee you that if you will incorporate this in your life, and if it's already a part of your life, if you will continue doing this, you will see big changes drastic changes and how you commune with God and how you understand his scriptures. And this can be a time of great personal growth for you, even in a time of great unrest in the world around us. All right. With that public service announcement out of the way, why don't we turn back to our topic this week, the idea that Jesus loves you and there's nothing that you can do about it. And so as we were planning for this series, I said that I would take the Wednesday Night Live Bible study, and we're going to read a passage tonight. We'll get to it in a moment. That's very famous. It's quite well known in most Christian circles. And you are going to hear me talk about this. And many of you are probably going to think, oh, I know that passage. And we'll get there in a second. But let's spend a little bit of time reading before it and what leads up to it and maybe a few other things. Now, if you're following along with me, I'm going to keep talking to the camera. I'm not going to share my screen, but one of these free resources that you can look at that's online is BibleGateway.com. And you've probably heard me mention that many times before, but if you're new to us or you're not familiar with that website, BibleGateway.com is a free free online website that has many, many different English translations of the Bible, and you can set them up, and you can switch back and forth between translations. It's got a nice, robust search feature, so if you can remember part of a verse or maybe a key phrase in a verse, but you can't remember exactly where it's found, you can find it by using the search feature that's built into BibleGateway.com. And so tonight, even as I'm doing this broadcast, on the screen next to me, you can't see it, but over to my left, there's another screen, and I have BibleGateway.com pulled up. And I'm going to read all my scriptures tonight out of the New Living Translation. And we're going to start in the book of Romans, and we're going to jump into chapter 8. And so Romans chapter 8, lots of good information here. And I'm going to pause in the middle of probably a well-recognized passage. And we're going to do a little bit of a rabbit trail and look at a few other scriptures, and then we'll come back to it. But let's start in Romans chapter 8. Again, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, and I'm going to begin at verse 35. And Romans 8 verse 35 says, Can anything ever separate us 
from Christ's love. So Paul is asking this rhetorical question. What could separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks a follow-up question to it, because what about suffering? What about pain? What about trials and tribulations? Grief, loss, death, etc. And so he asks, does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or if we're hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And then he's going to pick up a quote from Psalm 44, and he says, as the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. And that comes from Psalm 44, verse 22. And so Paul pulls in that Psalm 44 reference and he says, well, the scriptures even say that we're slaughtered every day. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. So he's asking, what can separate us from Christ? Is it hunger or if we're destitute or if we're in danger or if we're threatened? What if we're even being killed or have persecution? Can that separate us from the love of Christ? And then he answers his own question in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. He says, no, no, it's an emphatic no, absolutely not. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory. Notice that overwhelming victory, not just like a kind of sort of we can just barely make it across the finish line victory. No, no, no. He says overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, a very well-known passage of scripture that we're going to come back to in just a few minutes. But today... We're continuing this discussion about how Jesus loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. And here in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we have overwhelming victory through Christ and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. But before I go on with his next statement, I actually want to jump backwards in this letter, one chapter, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 7. And I want to read to you another passage of scripture that's pretty well known. This is Paul talking. This, this is a little bit longer, so just stay with me while I read this. And I like reading out of the New Living Translation. It's pretty straightforward translation of what he's saying. But just a little bit earlier in Paul's letter, this is Paul's reflection, his, his commentary on his own spiritual life. And listen to what he has to say in Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14. He says, so the trouble is not with the law, and we're jumping into the middle of a discussion about the law and sin, and is the law bad because it pointed out my sin, and Paul's answer is no, and we're jumping towards the end of his concluding remarks on this thought, and he says in verse 14, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and it's good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, then this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, 
but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one that's doing wrong. It is the sin that's living within me that does it. And I have discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? How's that for a passage? So here, the great Apostle Paul is writing, and he's taking a spiritual assessment, an inventory of his own life and his own walk with God. And it sounds almost like a children's um, book or, you know, something a little soothing. It's like, I want to do it, but I don't. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And I don't really like it, but I do it anyway. And we do this up and down and up and down. And so as Paul evaluates his own life, he very candidly says, look, I fail at this regularly. I fail at this really bad. And there's this war inside of me, in my mind, that I am never free of as I struggle not to sin. And even when I don't want to sin, I still constantly fail. And I'm a miserable person for it. Now, this is not very encouraging. This doesn't sound very good. And so he says, who can save me from this cycle? Who can save me from this life of going up and down and sinning and not sinning and wanting to do right but doing wrong and not wanting to do wrong but constantly doing it anyways? Verse 25 of Romans chapter 7 says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So Paul recognizes, the great apostle Paul recognized that he could not be free from this struggle. And no matter how hard he tried, he still failed. Please don't miss what I just said. The great apostle Paul very plainly stated here in Romans chapter 7 that no matter how hard he tries, he fails. He gets it wrong. He doesn't do what's right, even though he knows what right is. And notice throughout this passage, he's referring to himself in present tense. This is not Paul, the rebellious, headstrong young man who was fighting against God and persecuting the church. And that's the one who was living in sin. And now Paul, the older, mature apostle and disciple of Christ, lives a life victorious. No, 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 no. Paul, the church planner. Paul the Apostle, Paul the Scripture writer, talking in the present tense, says, I know what's right, and I fail at it. I want to do good, and I don't. And I don't want to do bad, but I do it anyways. And I'm a miserable person for it. Please don't miss this. Paul is describing his own spiritual state. Let me give you one other scripture passage, this time found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, and this is Paul writing to a young man he trained in the gospel who is now pastoring Timothy, hence we call this 1 Timothy, this first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. 
All right. So Paul's about to lay something on you that's really good. He says, this is very true and it's trustworthy. Everybody should accept this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yay and amen. Watch the follow-up statement. And I am the worst of them all. <laughs> so he says, you ready for this? Everybody should accept this fact. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Yay. And then he says, and I'm the worst one. What? Why is he talking like this? He goes on and he says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. And then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Are you, are you getting the craziness of what Paul's doing here? In Romans 7, Paul readily admits that he regularly struggles with sin and fails at it. And there's a war in his mind that he can't win and he's miserable for it. And he needs Jesus. And then here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul goes on to share that Christ came to save everyone, all sinners. And then he makes this weird statement and he says, and I am the worst of them. But it's all good because I'm going to brag about it and talk about something odd to brag about. Paul says, you see me? You know what I got going on? I'm the worst sinner of all of them. But this is good because it shows that if God can save me, he can save you. In fact, I am such a ridiculous, wretched failure, and God still saves me. So if he can save me, what could he do for you? And Paul brags about how bad he is. Paul brags about how terrible he's doing, and yet Christ has mercy on him and works through him. So what is going on here in this weird, mixed up, flipped upside down theology that Paul is espousing, where he boasts of how terrible he does? Now, to be fair, you go back and you read Romans in all of its context, and he says, should we sin so that way grace would abound even more? Absolutely not. He says, no, that's a ridiculous idea. So Paul is not promoting that you walk around purposely sinning. Paul is not promoting that you continue to live in open, defiant rebellion, doing whatever you want because, hey, God's merciful and full of grace and he's going to save you anyways. That's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is readily admitting that he regularly fails. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he tells Timothy, I'm the worst of all sinners, but God saved me so I could be an example to others that if he can save me, he can save you. So why is Paul so comfortable talking about his failure? Why is Paul so confident in this ridiculous boast about how bad he's getting it, how much he's messing up? Well, for that, we're going to turn back to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to go to two verses that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, probably two very well-known verses to many Christians, and this is Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read verse 38 and verse 39. And Paul says here, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Did you hear that? To, in, to him who has ears to hear, did you, did you hear what Paul just said? I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither 
angels or demons, as the New Living Translation puts it. The Greek word there is arche, meaning powers, rulers, authorities. Most scriptures take that to mean like spiritual authorities. Some translators just make it very blatantly like evil spiritual authorities, in this case, demons. So neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither are fears for today or are worries about tomorrow. So whatever you're scared about today, whatever you're concerned about for tomorrow, that can't separate you from God's love. No, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul could brag about his own failures and God's grace towards him. Paul could openly write about his struggle with sin and how he continually gets it wrong and how miserable it makes him feel because he understood that nothing could separate him from God's love. This is the man who persecuted the church. This is the man who actively campaigned to get the early Christians thrown in jail and advocated for their deaths. And then when God finally got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, and when he finally got Saul's attention and said, I'm Jesus and you are persecuting me, and it's hard to fight against the will of God. And when Paul spiritually got kind of slapped upside the head and had his great spiritual awakening, can you imagine the crushing condemnation and guilt that came with it? This is not just a man who lived in open, defiant rebellion against all of God. No, no, this is far worse. You know what this is? This is a man who, on a crusade for righteousness, dressed up his actions in spiritual language and then justified violence and persecution and hatred towards his fellow countrymen as a spiritual godly thing. And so with a badge of honor and a cloak of spiritual pride, he went around doing evil, proclaiming it as righteousness in the name of God. And when he finally woke up and realized how absolutely horrible that was, instead of crushing him in defeat, he learned to accept God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness. And years later, he could write to a young man that he had trained, who was now pastoring, and he said, you remember this, Timothy. Jesus Christ came to save all sinners, and I'm the worst of them. And God, in his grace, uses me as an example, because if he can save me, he can save you. Paul, the great apostle Paul, could write a letter to a church he had not met that he planned to travel to. This would be the church in Rome. And in this great letter, pinning much of his theological thoughts, his carefully laid out arguments, he very candidly tells these people how he continues, present tense, right now in action, continues to struggle with sin at war in his mind. And that which he doesn't want to do, he does. And that he wants to do, he fails at. And he doesn't do it. But just... Just a little bit later, 
That's the end of chapter seven. You get to the end of chapter eight. He said, but I am convinced that nothing can separate me from God's love. Did Paul use this as a license to continue living in sin? No, but he did recognize and accept and understand his own brokenness and that it's Jesus Christ who saves him. And it's that God's grace that allows him to find redemption, not Paul's actions. If you were watching last night, you would have heard Joyce make several really good statements about the fact that Jesus loves you and there's nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to earn that. And one of the things she said, which is a long time phrase around here, going back to the founding pastor, James Beardsley, and he talked about the fact that serving God is not a performance test. Your spiritual walk with God is not a performance test. Joyce said that last night. And how absolutely true that is. See, if it's a test, we're worried about our marks. We're worried about how well we're going to do on it. We're worried about getting everything just right. Because the consequence of not doing well on a test is a bad mark, a failing grade. What if you had to repeat the class? What if you didn't get to graduate? Now layer on to that the complexity of a spiritual life. And a massive truckload worth of guilt thinking about eternity. And now you've got a recipe for torture and mental disaster. Because what if you get this wrong? What if you don't live up to God's expectations? What if you fail this test? It will have eternal consequences. See, if you make this all about your actions, if you make it all about how well you're going to perform, you're constantly going to live with a massive load of guilt, and you're constantly going to live with a whole backpack full of worry and doubt, and is this enough, and is this good enough? Well, you don't have to take my words for it. Take it from the man who spent the early part of his zealous young ministry persecuting Christians, arresting them, and advocating for their death, their execution. And when he finally had his encounter with Jesus, and his spiritual eyes were opened, he realized how terrible he had gotten it. But he also understood that nothing could separate him from God's love because he doesn't earn God's love. God's love predates all of our actions. God decided he loved you before you were ever born. God cared enough about you that he stepped down from glory and he took on human form. God became human, and he entered our dirty, ugly, rotten, broken, stinky, sinful story. And he became human and then lived a life without failure to show us what it could look like. And then after living this beautiful, perfect life, allowed himself to be condemned for a crime he didn't commit. He allowed himself to be tortured and then put to death for going around doing good, for proclaiming a gospel of peace, for healing the sick, for raising the dead, for inspiring hope. And this God who became human, this Jesus Christ, loved you enough that he was willing to do all of that and pay the price for your mistakes 
so that you don't have to. And he loves you so very much. I hope somebody tonight is listening. And I mean, really listening, not just hearing my words, but listening to what I'm saying. He loves you so much that he was willing to go through all of that for you. And you don't earn his love. And you can't do enough good things to pass this test. It doesn't work that way. He loves you. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And when we get this, it changes our mentality and it changes the way we live. And I'm going to go just a couple minutes longer because I want to get this point. If you haven't already started submitting questions or comments, feel free to do so in our chat feature. But here's the shift that happens. And I know this shift because it happened in my life as a young Christian. Early in my walk with God, it was about getting it right. It was about passing the test and getting a good grade. And I was a very good student all through school and college. I know how to make A's. I know how to get the good grade. Not so much when it came to my walk with God. In fact, not at all. There was no passing grade because I knew my heart. I knew my mind. I knew my own struggles and the things that I wanted and my pride and arrogance and my anger and my temper and my lust and all these other things that I couldn't keep in check within myself. And I knew that come time to turn in the final exam on judgment day, I wasn't going to pass. And I was terrified. And I lived a life trying to do good enough and make sure that I got it right. And I viewed repentance as a giant spiritual eraser that I kept rubbing out the wrong answers. And every time I repent, you know, God would rub out that answer and I could go on with my test a little more. But then I'd get something else wrong. And so I'd have to repent, rub out the wrong answer. And hopefully when I got to the end of my life, if I repented enough regularly, you know, there'd be enough eraser marks on there that not too many answers would be wrong. And maybe I'd be found good enough. And that's a terrible way to live. And somewhere along the way in my Christian walk, God got a hold of me and I began to understand that he loves me and that I was never going to pass the test. I was not going to perform good enough. And that did not depress me. In fact, it was radically liberating. If you're struggling with this, do you know how freeing it can be to realize that you don't pass this test? You will never be good enough. So let go of that notion. That's not what this is about. But here's what happens when you get a healthy understanding of it. Knowing that I couldn't pass the test doesn't mean that I trash the test. Knowing that I couldn't pass the test doesn't mean that I crumple it up and I throw it in the waste bin and say, well, who cares? It doesn't matter. No, 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 no. Knowing that I couldn't pass the test, but he loved me enough to pay the price for my sin and through his grace, I can find salvation, makes me realize That even though I know I'm going to fail, even though I know every day I'm going to get up and I'm not going to live up to what I should be, I'm going to try, not because I'm trying to earn good marks and get the good grade, but because I love him in return. And he has been so wonderfully good to me, and I am so blessed above and beyond all measure, that out of a desire to please him, Out of my love back towards him, I want to be obedient to Jesus. I want to be obedient to the scriptures. And I want to live the best life that I can that is pleasing and acceptable to him. 
because I love him, not because I'm scared of the final exam. See, I still wake up in the morning and I need to pray. And I get up and I spend time and I talk to God. And somewhere in the day, I find time to read scripture. And I pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Not because I need the giant spiritual eraser to mark out my wrong answers, but because I know that I need help. And so I don't pray a prayer of repentance daily so that way I can get it right when I meet Jesus in eternity. I pray a daily prayer of repentance because I want to live as clean a life as possible, a life that's pleasing and honorable to him. I live in obedience to the scriptures, not because I'm scared of spending eternity separated from God. I live a life that tries to be obedient to the scriptures because I love him and I want to please him. And so from the outside, the actions look very, very similar. But on the inside, there's a radical difference. And in my mind, there's a radical, radical difference between the young Desi Lugo who's trying to pass the test and the older Desi Lugo who says, I'm not trying to pass a test. I'd know I'd fail it anyways. That's not the point. I just want to do the best I can to please him because I love him. And now, at this stage in my Christian walk, I can say, just like the Apostle Paul, that I am convinced there is nothing that could ever separate me from the love of God. I hope you come to that understanding, too. If this is a new concept to you, if this is something you're still struggling with, stick with us. We're going to spend a couple more nights talking about this idea that Jesus loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Would you celebrate with us in that wonderful revelation? All right, Vincent, if you don't mind joining me, hopefully by now we've had some people who've had a chance to submit some comments or questions or something. And we can interact with our congregation tonight. So thanks for joining me. Have we got anything to start out with? We do have actually quite a few. So the first one... I don't know if it's good or bad, but okay, let's see where this goes. Yeah. So the first one is, why do we sometimes feel shame to come to God after we have sinned? Oh, good question. And I like that it's present tense because it is real. And I feel this way too. And there are times when I am ashamed to come to God. For those of you who are parents out there, that's the closest thing I can think to relate it to. And you've got that child and you know when they've done something wrong and you know when they try to cover it up. And they cover up terribly for it. And you're waiting for them to make it right. And sometimes you just let them wait and wait in hopes that they'll make it right. And sometimes you confront that child. And I think in many ways, God, as our spiritual father, does the same thing. And he waits for us to make it right. And sometimes he confronts us with our failures. But likewise, think of that child. And you remember being that child to those of you who are a little older out there and how embarrassed and how ashamed you were. See, we have to swallow our pride in order to repent, and we have to own up to our mistake. Thank God that most of the time we don't have to pay all the consequences of our mistakes, but we do have to own them, and we have to fess up. I heard somebody recently, an elder in my life, say something, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately. It ties along with this. He said to me, you cannot have true repentance without confession. You cannot have true repentance without confession. 
In other words, and I don't mean confession in the priestly sense like, like the Catholic Church practices. I mean confession in the sense that you have to own it. You have to admit it and talk to God and not just say, I'm sorry if I ever did anything wrong. No, 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 no. You, you've got to own those sins, those mistakes, those failures. And it's hard and it hurts and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and it's miserable. And sometimes accountability and restitution requires that we also admit that to other people and try to make it right with them. And that is really difficult, but it's needed. And as we grow in Christ, hopefully we come to understand that it's part of the process doesn't mean that you'll enjoy it. And hear me clearly, it doesn't mean that it necessarily gets easier to do that. We struggle because of the sin that is at war in our life, just like Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. And there's this constant struggle going on in his mind between what he knows to do and what he doesn't do and what he knows he shouldn't do and yet he does. And he says, I am never free from that struggle. What a miserable person I am, King James. Oh, what wretched man I am. It's no different from us. It's no different for us almost 2,000 years after Paul wrote that. It is the human condition. And I wish it were different, but it's not. So the next one is kind of hitting a different angle. It says, what if we're just not ready to stop sinning? Well, all right. Let's talk about that for a moment. I don't know who is submitting this question and if they are um, trying to be coy or if they're just being candid with themselves. If you're out there and you're being candid with yourself, first off, let me congratulate you sincerely for at least being honest. If you're not ready to live a life dedicated to Jesus, don't bother faking it because a ridiculous and miserable way to live is to try and act like a Christian and not be a disciple of Christ. There's an axiom that says it's really hard to live easy and it's really easy to live hard. The idea that if you're sincerely trying to live for Christ and you work hard at it, it becomes easy. But if you're only half-heartedly making an effort because you know you should be living differently and you know that God loves you and this is really, but you're not yet ready to give up those vices and those selfish desires of yours, that's a miserable place to live. And so hear me as a pastor telling you, if you have no sincere desire to live for Christ, and if you're not ready to actually buckle down and be a disciple, you're wasting time. And it's an ugly, miserable way to live. However, hear the other pastor side of me say, you have no guarantee of tomorrow. None of us do. And our life is a vapor. Other places in scripture describe it like smoke. It's here and then it's gone. And you can't repent and make it right with God on the other side of that death divide. You got to get that part right now on this side of eternity. And when I say get it right, I mean repentance and turning away from a willful life of disobedience. You get the opportunity to do that now. You're not going to save yourself. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But God does expect you to come to him and to confess your sin and to repent, i.e. turn away from it and start living differently. If you're not ready to do that, then making a half-hearted effort is only going to make you miserable. And whoever submitted this question, I commend you for your honesty if that's really where you're at. 
But on the flip side, understand eternity is not something you want to play dice with. And you have no guarantee of tomorrow. You can't keep putting off for tomorrow what you know you need to do today. So at some point, you're going to have to make a decision. And hopefully you make that decision sooner or later. And notice, I'm not trying to guilt you and I'm not trying to pressure you. I could do the hellfire and brimstone tactic, but I know that that doesn't actually work long term. You have to want this. And you have to love God enough that you want to be obedient to his scriptures. And if you're not ready to do that, you need to take a long, hard look at yourself and do some assessment at where you think you're at and what are you really planning for eternity. Because eternity may arrive tonight. It may not. We don't get that guarantee. A little more sobering, but that's my answer. So then the next one is back in the tone of the first question. How can we overcome that feeling that we're always failing God? Well, this is going to sound counterintuitive. But here's what I tell you. Mercy Me has a song called Dear Younger Me. I don't know if you all are familiar with it, if you ever heard it. And in the song, he imagines what it would be like to write a letter to his younger self, Dear Younger Me. And if I could do that today... And I could write a dear younger me letter. I would, one of the things I would want to do is answer that very question. And so repeat the question, Vincent. How can we overcome that feeling that we're always failing God? And so dear younger me, how do you overcome that feeling that you're always falling down and always failing? I can answer this one now. Get your ears open. You ready for this? Because it's a little counterintuitive. Here's how you get over that. You lean into it. And when you lean into it, what I mean is you embrace the fact that you're right. You do keep failing. And instead of running from it, instead of trying to overcome it, instead of wrestling with the shame of it, you just learn to lean in it and you go, yes. I do fail, but it's by God's grace that I'm saved. And I am convinced that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. And I will never measure up and I will never live up to my full potential or what I should be in Christ. But I love him enough that I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to hold my head up and I'm going to look towards the heavens. And I'm going to recognize that as I continue on this journey, day by day, through God's grace, I get a little bit better. And I do just a little bit better. And I'm going to fall down and I'm going to get back up. And I'm going to fall down and I'm going to get back up. And I'm going to have good days and I'm going to have bad days. And I'm going to have high days and I'm going to have low days. But I'm going to keep walking. And I'm going to accept the fact and I'm going to lean into the fact that I am failing at this. And that's okay because it's not a performance test. And as counterintuitive as that sounds, when you really get this, and that's why I'm saying I I hope you're listening, not just hearing my words, but really listening. When you have this aha moment in your walk with Christ, it will change the way you walk. It will change the way you hold your head. It is not a license for sin. 
It is not a license for debauchery. It's not an excuse to be selfish and do anything you want. It's a realization that, you know what? I can't beat this. So I'm going to quit trying to beat this. I'm going to quit trying to pass this test. I'm going to quit trying to win. And I'm just going to live in God's grace. So related to that, the next question asks, sure. can you talk about the difference between conviction and condemnation? Ooh, great question. All right. This is a great question because they can feel very similar at first. But if I were going to summarize this, let's do the dear younger me. If I were going to do another dear younger me, here's what I wish that someone had told Desi Lugo 20 years ago, early in my walk with Christ. Dear younger me, the difference between condemnation and conviction is this. Condemnation points out your failure and whispers to you, you will never be good enough. You will never live up. Condemnation whispers to you, you can't make it. Condemnation labels you and says, you are fill in the blank. And it's always a negative. Condemnation comes with a good, healthy dose of guilt. Condemnation carries in it this subtle implication that you may as well stop and quit trying because you're not going to make it and you're not good enough and you're a fill-in-the-blank negative label. That's condemnation. Conviction. Now, conviction comes through the word of God and the voice of God. Conviction can show up when you read the scriptures. Conviction can show up in your prayer time with God. Conviction can show up in a song you're listening to. Conviction can show up in a message that's preached. Conviction can show up in healthy conversation with another Christian brother or sister. And conviction pierces you to the heart. And conviction says, this is wrong. Conviction says, you need to change this. Conviction says, you can do better. But conviction then says, keep going. Conviction says, do better so you'll improve. Conviction labels the action as wrong. Condemnation labels the individual as wrong. That's an important distinction. Conviction says, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. This is bad. Condemnation says, you are wrong. You are bad. Conviction says, stop doing that. Start doing this. Condemnation says, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But you're not going to do better. So why try? One of them grinds you down and wears on your soul. The other one prods you towards the light. One pulls down while the other pushes you forward. Conviction comes from God, and if you haven't guessed it by now, condemnation comes from our adversary. And at a casual glance, they may even look very similar, but the motivation is so, so drastically different. 
So the next question is, if I never obey him, will he still love me? Him, in this case, referring to God. I, I guess we're talking about God, Jesus, <laughs> right? You know, if I never follow after Jesus, will he still love me? Well, what does the scripture say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yes, it goes on to say that whosoever believe in him may have eternal life. But let's just focus on the first part for a moment. God loved the world and you're part of the world. God loved you enough that he came to die for you. Now, whether you accept that love, that's up to you. But it doesn't change his love. This week, our theme is the idea that Jesus loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, I've been focusing on the idea that that you can't live up to it. You can't earn it. So just embrace it. But on the flip side, that also means that you can't do enough wrong. You can't be wicked enough or evil enough or sinful enough that somehow God will stop loving you. That is a lie from the great accuser who spends night and day, if you'll let me say that metaphorically, before the throne of God throwing vicious accusations at us and whispering behind her ear, you're not good enough and you can't be good enough, so quit trying. And that whisper would say, you've done too much. There's a philosophical, and it's a silly philosophical argument, but it says, you know, could God make a rock heavy enough that he couldn't lift it? And it's a circular argument and it's ridiculous and it's silly, but likewise, if we fall for the lie that says, if I do X action, fill in the blank, whatever it is, it's so bad that God will no longer love me or God will no longer forgive me, then what you've just done in effect is limit the cross of Calvary. You've just said Jesus died and shed his blood for the sins of the world except me. God paid the price for sin at Calvary except for this one. This one's so bad that not even God could cover it. See, when we put it in those terms, we realize that it, it sounds ridiculous. And no, you don't earn his love. And likewise, you can't do enough to disearn his love. So what if you're never obedient to God? Well, scripture says eventually you will stand in judgment before him and you will have to pay the consequence for your actions. But it doesn't mean that he didn't love you. And that he doesn't love you. Conversely, though, even though I can't pay that cost, if I recognize he loves me and I choose to embrace that in return, by his grace, I can find salvation. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, also in Romans, where it says he changes the way you think, God can transform my mind and begin to transform me into a new creature a new creation, as Ephesians and Colossians talks about, I'll put on new clothes and take off my old clothes. And as this new person, I will live a life that is being, present tense, ongoing, transformed into a restored image of what he wants for us. Notice, all that language is present tense. It's still not accomplished yet, but it's something we work towards because we love him not because we're terrified of spending eternity separated from him. So how does a close relationship with God and in 
paired with that, knowing the word of God help our struggles with sin and the temptations of this world? Great question. It does a couple of things. So one of the things it can do is it helps us to identify sin. I like mushrooms. I enjoy cooking them, especially with butter and garlic and onions. I'm getting old because when I was a kid, I thought that was absolutely gross. And now that I'm an adult, I'd be quite happy to have mushrooms and onions and butter and garlic with probably almost every dinner I eat. I think it's delicious, right? But even though I love mushrooms, I also know that there are mushrooms out there that are very, very bad, like kill you very quickly mushrooms. And I don't know what I'm doing. And so I don't go to the forest and just pick random mushrooms and eat them because I like mushrooms. I go to the store and I buy mushrooms from the grocery store because I know the stuff I buy at the store is not poisonous and going to kill me. Why am I talking about mushrooms? In the same sense, as we study the word of God and as we spend time in prayer and draw close to him, as we allow the Holy Spirit to transform the way we think and change our heart and change our actions, we'll begin to identify and recognize actions that are poison to our soul. When we draw close to God, we get better at identifying sin. And so one of the things it does for us is it helps us to sort out, if you will, the, the good ones from the bad ones. In a spiritual sense, you're able to eat the mushrooms that are good for you and skip the ones that are toxic and poisonous. Now, here's the tricky part, though. I'm a rotten, selfish creature. And even knowing what is right, sometimes I choose wrong because I'm broken. And I am not free from this war with sin, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. And in my mind, I still struggle with what I know to be right, and I don't always do it. And as I draw closer to Christ, I also recognize how much he loves me and the grace that is extended to me so that I can get up and keep going. Sometimes I pick stupid, foolish, selfish choices that have bad consequences. But as I draw close to Christ and as I continue to spend time in prayer and as I read the scriptures, I recognize how much he loves me and I recognize the good that he wants for me and the grace that he extends to me if I will get back up and if I will confess my sin, because true repentance cannot happen without confession, and if I will confess that sin and repent of it and continue to turn back to him. Please notice my language tonight. Everything is present tense, active, ongoing. It's a continual act because it's something that's in process within all of us. And we are not free from this struggle until we cross that divide and we pierce that veil from life to death and cross the veil of death onto the other side of life made new and spend eternity with God. And so until you cross that veil of death, you will struggle with this. Paul clearly said he is not free from that struggle. He will never be free from that struggle. For the sake of time tonight, we're not going to get into it more, but this is not the only place where Paul says that. Read slowly the scriptures and you will see that you will not be free of this struggle until you cross over that death threshold. But until then, the closer I draw to Jesus, the more confident I am in his love for me, 
Notice how I said that. I am not more confident in my own special abilities. I'm not more confident that somehow I am going to live a life above reproach and without sin. Because that's not real. That's a fantasy. That's a lie I whisper to myself in pride. But I am confident in his ability and his grace to save me. And I am confident that I am being, present tense, ongoing, transformed into what he wants me to be. And over the course of a lifetime, I will do better and better. So we'll do one more question, and then I think we'll be done for the night. So this person says, I am struggling believing in a God. So what are some objectively verifiable facts, positively indicative, and or exclusively concordant with one available position over any other? Oh, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who you are, but let me say this. My email here at the church is desi.lugo at newarkupc.org. That's D-E-S-I dot L-U-G-O at newarkupc dot org. And if you want to reach out to me, I'd be happy to start a dialogue with you. But let me try to answer your question in part, because I used to be like this, and I've met many people like this, and your question is totally valid, but not something we can easily answer. In fact, let me just save you a little trouble. If you want verifiable, undeniable, radical, empirical evidence for one position over another, you're not going to get it. And this is part of a much bigger conversation that I'd be happy to have with you if you want to initiate contact with me. The short answer, which does not do this justice at all, is that when you reduce, and that's the correct word, when you reduce the world to something that's verifiable through empirical evidence, you've created what's called a closed sense a system. And in a closed system, your senses are the final authority. And the edge of human knowledge is the boundary of what's real and what's not. The problem with that is, as you well know, our knowledge keeps expanding and changing. And so the boundaries keep getting pushed out. And so what was just beyond the boundary as not real or impossible or theoretical keeps coming inside the boundary. And so there is, even in a closed system, no permanent fixed point. But a closed system turns a blind eye to everything that I don't understand and says, if I can't prove it, it's not real. And that's the challenge. You're using the wrong tools for a spiritual experience. And these are not bad tools. I like science. Science does many good, wonderful things. And evidence is very important. We live in a rationalized, realized world of laws that govern everything around us. And I am not taking anything away from that. But you can't apply those tools to a spiritual experience. And there are some things in life that you have to accept on faith. And God refuses, outright refuses, you can read this in his word, to be bound by our understanding and our rules and our laws, or in this case, our empirical evidence. And so he says, you accept me. You choose me. The biblical word for that is faith. You trust what I'm saying or you don't but you will never be able to conclusively prove it. Now, here's the good news. I 
am a great, uh, one individual and a great cloud of witnesses that can tell you through many, many personal experiences. And again, whoever you are, you reach out to me and I'd be happy to start a dialogue with you. That if you will make a step towards God, he will begin to reveal himself to you experientially. And experience is not something that's easy to measure and it's not easy to quantify. But it doesn't mean that you have to serve God in a vacuum and in absence of all understanding. He just says, you will never be able to prove my existence. You will have to trust and accept it. That's an act of faith. But if you will choose that act of faith, then I will let you experience my presence. In fact, he invites us to come and dwell with him. And to use even more biblical language, he says, if you will turn to me, I will come and I will place my spirit inside you and dwell within you. And there is no language on earth that properly, adequately describes the experience of having God choose to dwell within us and speak to us directly. I cannot prove this. I cannot demonstrate this. There is no math that will ever make an equation that balances this out, but I can experience it. And I can share my story with you. And if you're interested, whoever you are, I'd be happy to talk to you and you can ask more questions because it's a great question, but you've asked a question and asked, can we prove one way or another? And by prove, at least I'm assuming you mean in some sort of true, verifiable, ratifiable, empirical sense, one thing or another. And when it comes to the things of God, the simple answer is you can't. You have to accept it by faith. So whoever you are, I hope you keep asking these questions. And I hope you keep looking. And if you choose not to have a dialogue with me, have a dialogue with someone else at some point who has this experience with God. But understand what they're going to do is share with you their experiences. Because that's all we have is our personal experience to ground us in the reality of who God is, along with his scriptures. And we can't prove his scriptures, but we can experience them. And take in, you take that and you couple it with faith and it'll change your life. Vincent, I think we're at the top of the hour. We but. are. We are actually a little bit over. But, yep, that pretty much wraps up the questions for tonight. So let me say this in, in a closing thought, because this is a simple... What we read tonight is simple. It sounds very straightforward. It's overwhelming to accept it. It can be hard to comprehend it. And so if you're listening to us tonight and you are struggling with these ideas, first off, let me say that's okay. You're not alone. This is a common struggle. It's very real. Keep struggling with it. But ask God, spend time in prayer and talk to him and ask him to help you understand how great his love for you really is. And I promise you, it's totally counterintuitive, but lean into that failure. Not in the sense that you celebrate failure and you want to live in hedonistic rebellion, doing whatever you want that gratifies the flesh. And that's not what I'm talking about. But understand that I will never be good enough. So I quit trying to be good enough. And instead, I just try to be obedient because I love him. And externally, they look very similar. But internally, especially up here, it's a world of difference. 
And it's the difference between a life driven by condemnation and fear and guilt and a life that walks with Jesus in peace. Let me close with a quick word of prayer. We're over the top of the hour, so what's another 30 seconds? Heavenly Father, as we close out this message tonight, whoever is listening, I I pray that they hear your voice speaking to them. I pray that this has been an encouragement to those who would join us. In the name of Jesus, we pray whenever people should listen to this broadcast, whether it's live or even later on, let your words and the truth of your scripture ring true in their ears. Help us to understand that we don't earn your favor. We don't earn our salvation. We can't. It's by your grace that we are saved. And you loved us so much that you became a human and you died for us. Help us to understand, like the Apostle Paul, that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from your love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for joining our broadcast. If you are regularly with us or you want to check us out, come back tomorrow night at 7 p.m. as we continue this series on Jesus Loves You and There's Nothing You Can Do.